When it comes to physical preparation and rehab in a physically demanding job, there's a lot of noise and contradiction out there. Stretch, don't stretch, mobilize, don't mobilize, rest until your nagging injury is gone, or don't rest, train through it. Today, we're clearing the air on prehab and rehab for the tactical athlete or anyone who just wants to move well for the rest of their lives. I'm your host, Meg, and this is The Valkyrie Project. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Valkyrie Project podcast. I'm your host, Meg. We're excited to be recording our second podcast ever today. I'm sitting down here with one of our Valkyrie Project mentors, Miss Shannon Snig, here in beautiful Eastern North Carolina. Welcome, Shannon. Thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. I wanted to just start talking a little bit about what your background is with physical therapy, you know, what you've seen in your career, what made you want to do this job, and really after that, get into the nitty gritty of, you know, some of the mistakes that people are making with their training, things they can do better, and just generally useful advice for folks out there that have to meet high demands of physical training and don't necessarily know how to work around those things. Oh, sure. That's a very broad topic. Uh. <laughs> we, could, we could be here all day, couldn't we? We really could. Well, let's see. I've been a physical therapist for 16 years. Wow. That doesn't make me sound very old. Um, you don't look at it at oh, all. Well, thank you. <laughs> What's your secret? Inquiring minds want oh, to know. Oh, good gracious. Just work out. <laughs> I don't mind even sure. Probably I like just good that genetics. advice. Yeah, I've been a physical therapist for 16 years. I've been associated with the military. Um, I did join the military except 14 years ago and has been. A, I've been a physical therapist for them the entire time. Never done anything else. Most recently, I finished active duty time in 2016. I was working under USASOC for the previous five years. Before that, worked in, you know, again, regular medic clinics along with some civilian sports orthopedic clinics. So pretty much my entire career has been sports orthopedic related. And then the last five years was very specific, very high tempo, high intensity, you know, taking care of guys who don't have time to take care of themselves. Gotcha. Wow, I can't imagine just the volume of experience that must have come with, you know, that kind of exposure and that kind of time spent. Did you always know that you wanted to do something in healthcare or physical therapy, or is it something that you were kind of inspired to do in a particular moment? Never really overly inspired. It was actually kind of funny. My father also being kind of very, he's also (laughs) retired military. And so he sat me down and was like, you know, you need to figure out what you want to do with your life. This was probably my junior year in high school and kind of narrowed it down. I was like, all right, I really think I want to do the healthcare field and and so in the most awful, of course, for a teenager way possible, he was like, you know, why don't you go do some volunteer work and, and figure out what setting you'd rather work in. Long story short, one day I, they kind of just accidentally threw me in the physical therapy clinic. I was doing some filing and um, I'm looking around and everyone was happy and like was in a really good mood and everyone just wow. seemed to be kind of just it was really upbeat. And um, I was like, you know what? This would be pretty cool to do for my entire career. It's nothing very... uh philosophical, but that was kind of how I was like, you know, I could do physical therapy. I gotcha. And it must be, you know, I guess it's hard to not like your job when you're constantly helping people. And that's absolutely it. I I mean, as long as assuming the person's competent, you know, if they're helping people, they're, they're really enjoying it. (laughs) Exactly. I would hope so. I mean, there's no sense in being in the healthcare field if you don't love what you do. The second you start hating what you do as a as a physical therapist or as a healthcare provider, I really feel like it's probably time to seek other options, but 
Yeah, I, I, I would. I couldn't agree more with that. You know, I would. I would like to think all my healthcare practitioners want to hook me up too. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I had to giggle a little bit too about when you're talking about your your dad sitting you down at 17, just because it's funny to me how in our society there's very much a habit of making teenagers essentially, you know, non-adults, half adults decide what to do with the rest of their lives. And for a lot of people, it turns out to be something entirely different. You know, my path changed drastically over the years. I was originally an interior design major. So I always make the joke that I should have been picking out (laughs) curtains right now. Don't be mad out there, interior designers. I know you do more than pick out curtains. That's my personal joke. But um, it's awesome that, you know, you got started so early. You found your passion. You've been able to carry that through. Yeah. What has been your favorite part about serving in this capacity for such a long time? You know, I just really love the relationships you develop with your patients. And I think that was also what drew me to physical therapy in the first place. Anyway, as you look around and nurses are amazing, but they are so busy. And doctors are amazing, but they are so busy and they're Mm -hmm. running around and crossing all the T's, dotting all the I's and all of that. And physical therapists, I feel like because we get to spend multiple, you know, extensive time with each person over, you know, a lot of times four, six, eight weeks, and depending on what you're rehabbing, it can be months and months. I just really like developing the relationships with the people. And mm-hmm. I think that's kind of what really drew me toward, towards it. And that's, you know, I love listening to people talk to me about all sorts of things. You hear all sorts of fascinating things from your patients when you're treating them. But um, but I, I really love that part. And, and you know, when yeah. you, they're laying there and you're, you're doing some things with them and then they get up and they're like, I really feel a lot better. You know, that kind of makes my day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I feel like you also have to, especially as a physical therapist, also have the gift of the gab, which, you know, I say that a lot about on my stepdad's side in particular, there's a lot of uh, service industry folks in my family, particularly hairdressers. And it's like, you couldn't be successful in a service industry job if you weren't a person who genuinely cared about like hearing other people's stories because I've you know I've been myself on the physical therapy table a number of times Mm -hmm. and listening in on someone else's story like wow this guy had an issue with his toe and it just devolved his whole I've been on a 20-year journey to try and fix this toe (laughs) or this issue and but I've always been really impressed too especially you know I've had really good luck with good experiences with military physical therapists and it's always been listening genuinely and taking in all the information that, that the that the client has to share. So it's good. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of even like with diagnosing, I think a majority of half the time where I see my path going as far as how to treat a person and where else to kind of explore to see what's going on is if you just listen to them, they're going to mm-hmm. tell you probably what's going on. They may not verbalize it, mm-hmm. you know, diagnostically, but, you know, they're like, well, you know, I was doing this. And then they'll be like, well, come to think of it, I was doing X, Y, Z the other day. And It'll lead you down a, a rabbit hole. Sometimes takes a little bit of time, but if you really put it all together, you can really get a better picture of the person as a whole and kind of sort of really sort out what's been going on. And I think that's such a big deal for, you know, again, getting back to the, to the listening portion. I know a lot of our listeners out there and occasionally myself included, you know, not so much on the physical therapy side, but on just general healthcare, you know, visiting general practitioners. Some of us have had really good experiences with military medicine and some of us have not had such great experiences. I think a lot of the common tendency or at least the way people perceive the tendency is for, you know, doctors or sometimes nurse practitioners or whoever's, you know, serving the person that day is to be like, well, it stinks that you're going through that. Have some ibuprofen, drink some water, rest a couple days and come back to me. And, uh, you know, there have been some folks that have expressed, you know, frustration with feeling that they're going back to a practitioner repeatedly with an issue. 
Um, so something that I've always kind of believed to be important as a service member is to find your voice, to figure out how to be proactive and come to those service providers, no matter who they are, with a concrete idea of this is my biggest concern. How, how can you help me? And also not being afraid to ask for second opinions. What's been your experience from that perspective? You know, if you could, if you could give some advice to people that are, are struggling with that kind of thing right now. Gosh, it is actually kind of a hard topic because you're going to get all types of, of providers, whether it, whether you're civilian or whether you're in the military. Um, you'll get the ones that will truly listen to you and really you're trying to sort things out. And then you have ones, you may even just be catching them on a bad day and they've got a lot mm-hmm. of stuff going on. But unfortunately, their bad day is happening while you're trying to get take, take, yeah. taken and care of. they're human beings too. Exactly. Yeah. So I always try to be a little bit kind and sympathetic to that. But again, you're absolutely right. No, almost have like a checklist. And if you need to write it down, go in there with written notes and be like, you know, at the end of the day, I want to address A, B, and C with this provider. And if they, you know, I had a patient actually just treated him a couple minutes ago and he told me he's 26 years old without any prior injuries to his knees. And he went, he was telling about an experience where he went and saw a provider downrange and it was like, oh yeah, man, your knee pain, that's, that's arthritis. And which is a, I mean, I'm not going to, barring tragic, like, like a genetic condition, Cro- genetic or, condition kind of or chronic, chronic injury yeah. like rheumatoid arthritis or something like that. He is a 26-year-old guy who's never had any legitimate injuries. At 26, he's not going to have arthritis. Mm-hmm. That that should not be your first answer. If he was right. 50, I could kind of see. But, you know, so – and he's like, yeah, and then he just gave me medication for it. And I was like, this is ridiculous. And so, yeah. you know, if I had been in this place, I'd been like, I understand you see a lot of guys who have a lot of injuries and have had a lot of long-term issues – but I know this is, you know, this is not, this is not this. This is something that came up rather sudden. You know, be able to kind of ex- describe your injury. You know, when you tell people, oh, I've got knee pain, that's, I got it. it it's kind of, but it's very vague. <laughs> and so the so, provider should ask you questions, but you should also right. be able to explain, this is when it hurts. It's exactly when I do these things. This is what makes it worse. This is what makes it better. Like if you can think in, in advance and you know, if this, if this appointment is something you don't, you're going to wait another four weeks for or whatnot, make a list and be like, this is what aggravates it. This is what makes it feels it better. You know, I can do these things, but I can't do this. And that really helps us tweak it out. Like if I can squat versus I can't lunge, but I can squat. That tells me actually quite a bit about probably the mechanics of what's okay. going on. I think that's really good advice, and I hope that some of our listeners, when they find themselves in that kind of situation in the future, maybe employ that because you're right. The, now that I think about it, the better experiences that I have had with you know physical therapy and visiting military doctors in general is that when I'm able to describe specifically the profile of when things hurt, then it, be, it narrows it down quite a bit more. So I want to move on now, Ms. Shannon, to talking about some common tactical athlete mistakes if there are a couple like i would say if you had a big three what do you see most frequently on your table where you just kind of want to shake your head at that person and be like what are you what are you doing guy what are you doing girl like what can we what can we do a little better to take care of ourselves so that maybe we don't end up on your table or you know if it's too late and there's already an issue an injury you know what are things that we should not be trying to do to self treat before we make it worse Good question. Oh, gosh. Um, probably the number one thing I see most people doing, I might actually break this up to male and female standpoint. Okay. Males, probably one of the number one things I used to always see were 
I would they were working out with a group of friends. And as it turns out, <laughs> isn't that how every single story starts? Seriously, my friend will show me this new move. Exactly, right? They were showing me and this the new move. And the girls do it sometimes too. Or yeah, or I have known women who've done this too. You yeah. know, and they're like, well, you know, I just didn't want to have to change the weights, and it was a little heavy, but I thought I'd just work through it. And next thing you know, they're on your table complaining of back pain because they hurt themselves deadlifting, or they pressed overhead too heavy, and now their shoulder hurts. And it's it's something that could have been so easily prevented if you had just maybe swallowed the ego a tiny bit, you know, mm-hmm. and, and actually adjusted the weight down to a more reasonable size. Um, yeah, something more in your range. Exactly. Like and kind of knowing your own limits and, and not being afraid to, to make those changes or to... That's probably my, my biggest thing I always see where it's like the guys are... Honestly, becomes a little bit of an ego test. Yeah. And the body loses. <laughs> there's so much pressure too, especially when it's like friends that you generally have a lot of respect for. Like if it's people that you work with in a military profile and everybody's going to the gym together. Like an SF team. Those guys Mm -hmm. tend to do everything together. They're like five, six dudes. And they, I swear, I'm joking mostly, but like, you know, you'll see them and it's like, they might as well just go to the bathroom together too. Cause like they do everything. (laughs) They just kind of walk around the building together. That's a tight team right there. They're a, that's but an effective team with those until teams somebody and, gets broken. Until someone yeah. gets broken and then they all sit there and they actually will, and you'll even have some of them like walk in with their friend. They're like, he's hurt, yeah. do something with him. And you're like, okay, well guys, what were we doing? <laughs> yeah, man, I think we all suffer from that a little bit because like, especially in as I get older and get further down my fitness journey, I try to make myself, you know, compare myself to me. Like, mm-hmm. all right, Meg, you know what your limits are. It's not worth hurting yourself in order to, you know, have this moment of glory today or whatever in the gym. But inevitably, from time to time, when I'm in a group of, you know, women that, you know, I have a lot of respect for, that are really studly and putting up a lot of weight and big numbers, I'm just like, man, I got to bring it. I can't just, I can't just let this be. We suffer from that. And I think that's good advice. We all do. to To know our limits for sure. That and having a good coach helps, but that's, that's another story for another day. No, that's really true. Um technique is everything mm-hmm. but uh, also just i think on the female side i think we tend to even more than men we will over train because we already know that we're coming and this is just a biological fact male like the musculature like how we are just how we're built females we, we are going to be intrinsically a little bit weaker than males or they're going to be a little bit stronger than us whichever way you want to look at that like about you know body weight per body weight and your equal mm-hmm. fitness so I feel like going into it that way, already knowing that, I feel like we as women, we tend to really just like pull up wise. You know, I used to, the unit I used to work with, um, I, one of the big physical tests they would do involved a lot. It was a lot of upper body strength things. Mm-hmm. And and the females always tended to be a little bit, you know, struggle a little bit more than the males on that just because that's how we're built. Mm-hmm. And you would see so many shoulder injuries from just, doing pull-up after pull-up after pull-up after pull-up and you know and they're doing it five days a week trying to hit it I mean and you're looking at him and they're and I'm like well does that hurt oh you know the first five hurt but they only start to warm up and I think that's knowing your body a little bit the other way around you should be warm before you start pulling and then you would think well yeah I'm I'm sure they've probably done a warm-up but yeah I know what you mean mm. for sure. And I think what you're what you're talking about also speaks a lot to the, the kind of things that we want to get after and improve upon in the fitness industry when, you know, we discussed the Valkyrie Project tactical training program for mm-hmm. women. We know based on scientific evidence that, you know, pound for pound, 
men tend to be stronger than women in the upper body, but women tend to be better than men in the lower body. We yep. know that women can handle a bigger training volume, but with less intensity and that the guys can handle more intensity. Um, and we also know that it takes gradual work to get to a point where that upper body strength or that lower body strength, depending on what you're good at, are built to a point where you can, you know, use that strength safely in a, in a range of motion that's intelligent for, for what you actually need. Right. Um, so, you know, we're looking looking forward to gradually building the stats and just seeing what happens with that first cohort of females doing the training program. Oh, for sure. Um, but yeah, definitely understanding your limits is so, so huge. And, you know, I've, I feel like I've been on my official fitness journey for about 10 years now, and I still got a lot to learn. So it's hopefully even, hanging out with you, I can fix that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think it's not even just so much um, knowing your limits because it's not necessarily – I don't look at it as a limit. It's just knowing – how much stress you can put on the same tissue, whether you're a guy or a girl, you know, on the same tissue day after day after day without it eventually, if you're not doing your your stability ac- activities to stabilize and, mm-hmm. and support them, that joint sure. or those muscles, you know, just knowing just that at some point you have to allow rest too. Oh, yeah. And I think that's, you know, if anything, that's probably one of our biggest. Yeah. Overtraining is such a, such a big issue in this community as well, I think. For sure. Um, and I can definitely understand the perspective too of, you know, there's a very big difference between general fatigue that you can recover from after a day of rest and pain of lack of range of motion and lacking the stability muscles to make sure that, you know, an entire joint like the shoulder is safe and performing properly. Exactly. Okay. So moving on from that, something that I've seen a number of different times that I really feel like has become kind of a personal decision for me, but might be different for some others that I'd like you to just shed some light on if you could for us, Shannon, is that a lot of times in the profiles that we work in, in the military, you find yourself in a situation where you have an injury or a pain, something going on. It's not always conducive at that moment in time to, to drop everything and rest. And especially I've seen, you know, before I joined and I was on the civilian side getting treated for certain things, mm-hmm. the standard answer would be, well, that pain that you have in your knee, you just have to rest until it's gone. And that's not always something that we can do in this job profile. It's just for whatever reason, um, in general, you know, if, if the work tempo is kind of slow, then you're, you know, a lot of times the chain of command can give you a little bit more time to recover and do what you need to do. But there are other times when it's like, this is not an option. Uh, So for those times when continuing to train is kind of required, what do you typically recommend for your athletes in terms of accommodation? Um, You know, if we talk about, for example, the rice technique, is it a good idea generally to rest, ice and compress and elevate? Or would you recommend other techniques for, for getting around those things? Kind of is a little bit joint dependent, injury dependent. But if we're talking kind of generalities, um, I'm a big, if it's, if your joint is starting to swell, you know, if you've done a whole bunch of rocking and you know that tomorrow you're still going to do a whole bunch of rocking, um, you're going to want to ice that either ice bath, ice baths are great. You can do a contrast bath. You can do it around, let's say like four to five minutes in the ice and then do a couple minutes in the heat. And if you're having some swelling always in the ice, that's probably a really good, actually, ice baths are probably some of the best things you can do. Okay. Okay. <laughs> as far as you know, being able to continue on training, whether 
you know, whether you want to or not, um, that it does a really good job of, of decreasing the swelling, decreasing inflammation, decreasing irritation, and the tissue can kind of recover from that. Contrast works well with being able to flush the body a little bit more. And so if you've got a lot of buildup from doing a lot of heavy endurance activities for the past two days, getting in there and doing the cold heat, cold heat, and end on cold, um, that'll again help flush the system. It allows the vascular system to get get everything moving and all of those chemicals that have built up, clean, flush out, flush all that out and decrease the, honestly, the chemicals that cause pain. Um, so a huge fan of that. Um, obviously doing mobility will help. Uh, when I say mobility, I guess I mean foam rolling and I mean trigger point, um, whether you want to use a lacrosse ball, tennis ball, whatever you want to use. So like a trigger point massage type. Trigger point massage, okay. not necessarily your tent. You're going to tend to get pain at your tendon is tendinous areas. It's never okay. almost never going to be mid substance muscle. Okay. You don't want to necessarily trigger point or foam roll directly on the tendon that's ticked off. That's you're just going to kind of tick it off more. Best instead of instead of getting right on there, which a lot of people do, and they're like, all right, it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. Help in the long run. Not necessarily true. What I would do, for example, let's say it's the knee. If it's the top part of your patella, you know, your kneecap, I would go and find where I'm tight in my quad and I would trigger ball that. I would get on the okay. foam roller there. So you're kind of going upstream of that really tendinous location yes. to find where it's occurring in the in the soft tissue. Exactly. Because okay. if you can loosen it up in the muscle belly, that's going to allow you to have more mobility and movement at that tendon area and you're going to decrease the pressure there and allow it to calm down. Gotcha. Uh, most people tend to want to treat right where the injury is, like right where that pain is. But if you if you back up a little bit, normally that's going to be more effective for you. Okay. And the main reason I bring it up is, you know, I think a lot of people that are listening would agree with me. That, you know, I've been in this situation before too, but it's just, it's a sucky feeling to be 80% through a particular school or a particular training event that it's like, man, you know, I never, ever want to have to do this thing again. I have to, I have to make it through the last couple days or whatever, the last couple hours of this event. You know, a lot of times the military is also really good about placing medics and other providers <laughs> available to, you know, students of a particular school, let's say, or as part of, you know, the cadre of an event. But, you know, there's also downtime when, you know, people are just resting between events where mm -hmm. an individual could be Doing something like foam rolling, say, if that if that was something they were allowed to bring on their packing list or whatever. Even so if it's just a tennis know. ball, that's small. Mm -hmm. You can pack it well. Tennis ball is a miraculous item. I can attest to that. Or it a lacrosse is. ball. For sure. <laughs> awesome. Also, for lower back stuff, because um, I, mean, I feel like in the military, that's probably the number one thing you see is this lower back pain. Really? Okay. Yeah. Yep. Lower back pain or shoulder. It's, in my experience, that's it's where everyone tends to break down. Mm -hmm. A lot of times your lower back pain is not necessarily, if you, it's not going to necessarily be a disc issue. It's not necessarily going to be tissue where your spine itself is, is what's upset. If you look at, honestly, again, quick fixes is what I'm talking about here. If you look into your hips, if you loosen up like your gluteus medius, gluteus minimus, your piriformis, all of those rotators, your stability muscles of the hip that a lot of times will alleviate your lower back pain. That Just makes a lot of sense when you, like, now that I think about it, you know, so much of what we do in general as functional human beings, but also as part of like a tactical profile where we're having to move heavy weight for long periods of time, the biggest joint in the body is, is at the hip and it's right next to the back. So of course it would make sense that if, some, if there's some kind of 
angry tissue or instability or imbalance in the hips that it would manifest itself in the back. Absolutely. All of that fascia, if you think about it, all the connective tissue where the muscles attach up there, right at right at the top of your hip bone, right mm-hmm. at the crest there, all of that attaches in fascially through you know connective tissue to your lower back. So if your hips are tight, your lower back's going to be tight. Same thing, like you know hip flexors, probably almost almost maybe one of the number one muscles that we, I look at when someone comes in with lower back pain. I'm going to be like, well, let me let me release your hip flexors. So mm-hmm. getting in that with a – you can get that with a trigger ball, like mm-hmm. coming right on the inside of your hip bone where, where it juts out in the front. You can It's miserable, but you can lay on it or you can do your half kneeling stretches or, or anything that's going to get that front side. But Okay. Yeah. Good to know. Obviously, with the Valkyrie Project and what we're trying to get after, we're really looking to enable female military athletes. What do you see more commonly with women? I would assume it has probably a lot to do with – hips and in particular, you know, the Q angle challenges that, you know, our anatomy posed to us that the guys don't necessarily have to deal with all the time. Do you see more hip and back issues with, with females or is it something else that maybe I haven't identified that, you know, women need to be looking out for when they find themselves in, we'll call it a state of stress or duress, you know, hungry, tired, understressed in training, whatever that profile might look like. What, what's most common for women? Is it the same? A little bit different. Most common for women, you'll almost always, especially if it's more like they've been carrying a lot of load. They've mm-hmm. been under a lot of load. They've been walking a lot of miles. You're going to get, they're very prone. Women, we tend to be very prone to trochanteric bursitis. So your irritation right up at the hip, right on the outside of the hip. So okay. it's, it's not in the front of your body. It's right there. Like if you lay on your side, it, you wouldn't be able to lay on your side to be that flared up. Okay. IT band syndrome. We're really bad yeah. about IT band syndrome. Really okay. bad. At, you know, it can present at the, at the hip or can present down at the knee. Just kind of depends on the person. Um, they'll get some lower back pain, but it, it's not really the main complaint. Almost always for females, I find that that lateral chain from the hip to the knee is some of the primary things. Again, you'll also see some shoulder stuff because, again, I think we tend to try to, again, compensate and overwork a little bit trying to do our upper body and we just don't we don't work the stability musculature enough to stabilize that gotcha it's interesting you bring up the hip stuff i mean i guess it was my fault i guess i brought the hip (laughs) stuff but uh something that i've actually noticed over the years is initially when i was you know in the very beginning of getting into a military kind of shape and having to carry a rucksack around that was you know relatively heavy for my body size at the time i often had well-meaning male role models and mentors in the community that'd be like, you're a woman, your hips are bigger, therefore you should use this lower strap on the rucksack that essentially hooks around your waist like a seatbelt. And you should carry most of the weight on your hips because you're a woman and you have hips. Use your hips. They're big. Do it. All right. Okay, great. And really well-meaning people that are, you know, still good friends to this day that I would never, you know, be mad at them because they were just trying to help me out. But I've noticed that and this might just be a Meg thing based on my own pers- like personal experience, but I've noticed that after a number of miles with all of the weight ratcheted down on my hips, I feel terrible, absolutely <laughs> awful. But if I configure my weight so that most of the heavy weight is high on my back and kind of sitting behind my head, and the straps on my shoulders are the only thing attached, like if I leave my waistband unattached, I feel a lot better. Is that something that you've seen or heard of? Is that a myth or is that maybe just a weirdness about me? 
I'm not really sure because I actually, when I do ruck, when I've done rucking and when I've done just backpacking and camping, I do tend to use the hip, but I don't, a lot of people tend to hit it really low. Mm -hmm. I think it should come up really high above, basically sit on top of your iliac crest versus down Maybe that's what I was doing your iliac crest. Um, Because I think I had it below the crest and then it was just always agonizing for me. You're locking yourself down. Yeah, no, absolutely. So if you come up and above that and let it kind of sit on top of your hips, almost like a, I'm not going to say shelf because no woman wants to (laughs) hear their hips being referred to as a shelf. But if you kind of rest on those hip bones, I I found that to actually be pretty comfortable. And then really getting, you know, if you're, if you got a lot of top weight um, by your head, really making sure that that's, you know, really close to your body and tightened on those straps. So it's not leaning away from you. Okay. Um, Yeah. Well, thanks for the personal (laughs) advice for Meg one-on-one session. Now we'll try to get back onto topics that the rest of the listeners want to hear about. One of my favorite things to do is myth debunking because at some point or another, I feel like all of us are victims of really well-intentioned myths. And some of them, you know, I've been able to sort of sort out over the years through personal experience and just talking to people that are way smarter than me. But I'll throw out a couple things that I think may or may not be myths. And then because you're the trained person with all the expertise, you know, you tell me what you think and, and we'll roll with that because you're the subject matter expert. Static stretching. So... This is a thing that's been in a lot of aspects of the military that in recent years they've tried to do away with, I think. Uh, but I think there's still kind of a perpetual habit, you know, be driving down the road and see a unit doing group exercise on the side of the road. And everyone has just rolled out of their car and pounded a Red Bull and they just start static stretching. Just bend over and stretch and then we're going to go run 10 miles or whatever it is. What's your opinion on that? Okay. No, I'm not, I don't say throw static stretching out the window, but I think it, its place is after your activity. Mm -hmm. Prior to the activity, you should be doing no more than a two to five second hold when stretching. Um, You should, you know, a lot of your kind of your big movements, like the world's greatest stretch where you lunge and rotate and kind of take your body through slow movement, but you're not holding. Um, That's probably going to work a little bit better for you. Uh, Actually, your body or your brain, when you hold a static stretch, your brain will actually naturally inhibit your ability to contract that muscle as strong as you normally can if you hold for a long, you know, for so a really long time. you could be creating instability in your structures prior to a physically strenuous event by static stretching. Yep. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so that's good to know. Guys, don't stretch out a whole lot before your back squat one rep max because it might end badly, right? Exactly. So instead, <laughs> maybe start, you know, doing some, some muscle preps or – you know, if you're going to be lifting, pressing overhead, know that you should probably do some stability exercises, even if it's just like three to five reps of it for your shoulders, warm it up. It's, I used to explain it to, to people um, and still do now. It's, you know, you're not necessarily a Porsche when it comes to your muscles firing instantly and going zero to 60. Think of yourself as a diesel engine. And you want to I warm like that. that okay. <laughs> you want to warm the engine up. You don't ever just turn on an eighteen wheeler and then gun it, right? That, right. that you're going to rip something, tear up the engine. But if you, you know, do some of your stability exercises, do a little bit of uh, mobility for that, and get the muscles ready to work, especially the stabilizers and like in your shoulders and your hips, and then then they're primed and they're ready to go. Everything's going to go a lot better for okay. you. So when we talk mobility, you mean like. In addition to foam rolling, maybe some of that where you take a take the joint against a tension rubber band and kind of work through the range of motion there. Definitely, you can do band work. Um, you know, you can do 
It's kind of hard to describe without demonstrating. Without a video. <laughs> <laughs> but anything that kind of works your rotator cuff for your shoulders. So external is so in and out for your shoulders, um, your hips, kind of same thing in and out. They have external internal rotators as well. And those are some of those big muscles like your piriformis, for example, is a big one that tightens up when you fatigue out. And that's going to cause your lower back pain. That's going to cause your hip pain. That's going to cause you to not be able to stride out as far. Um, all of those things. So kind of warming up those muscle those muscles a little bit before you start okay. going for it. Good stuff. Yeah, I've, I've found that I have really good success with static stretching if it's after my workout. Yes. Not before. I'm a huge fan afterward. You know, awesome. and I love, you know, I do yoga and I enjoy holding, well, I'm not going to say enjoy. That's probably a lie. I benefit <laughs> from holding those those positions that, that put me into a really good stretch for lengths of time. And I think it's an excellent practice. It's just, yeah. it's not meant to do right before you do a bunch of really hard physical activity. Yeah. And I guess that the yoga is really an active lengthening that takes you through ranges of motion to reinforce that range and strengthen it. Not so much just, just hold it too loosey goosey and then try and go perform. Exactly. Okay. Good to know. I'm glad I'm on the right track there. So here's another interesting one that I'd like to get your perspective on. I, you know, I know you're going to cringe at me a little bit, Shannon, but that's okay. So Dr. Google, everyone's favorite. Hmm. I had IT band problems for a while and, you know, I figured I'm a smart person. Like I know how to find credible sources online to listen to versus sources that are not so credible. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But just out of my, you know, in my process of sniffing out, you know, what can I do to help with this IT band pain? Because at the time it wasn't convenient to go see somebody. I found a physical therapist's blog Mm -hmm. that had written a lot about IT band sufferers and... One of the interesting things I thought that they had written was it was essentially a rant about it, that's the impression I got anyway, uh, that, that basically said, I'm tired of all these physical therapists that will treat a person's neck if their toe hurts. It's like, if the toe hurts, treat the toe. It's not anything else. It's the toe. But the impression I've always been under, and I would think my assumption is you'll agree with me that everything's connected. A lot of times when something is happening in a joint or an extremity that's an issue, you can often find some kind of dysfunction at the next joint upstream. So with that said, you know, what should, should people be looking out for, you know, other oddities? For example, if I continually have elbow pain, for example, is it worth trying to explore what's going on maybe with my shoulder or with a dysfunctional movement pattern and not just automatically assuming, like you said before, that there's random arthritis in my elbow for no apparent reason. Right. Exactly. No, mm-hmm. I agree. Odd that you brought up the elbow. A lot of times that lateral epicondylitis or commando elbow or whatever we're calling it these days, you know, where you pick something up. I've actually up never and heard that it. one, commando oh, elbow. We do it all the time because pistol shooting, like pistol shooting oh, is one of the number yeah, one things. Yeah. If you do it repetitively over time, we'll just fire up that outside elbow. Okay. So we jokingly, when I was working with the military in the, in the military, <laughs> um, we, we called it commando elbow because all of them got it, especially in some of their courses where they were doing it for six months mm-hmm. at a time and there was no, there was no rest time. So they had to keep doing it. But yeah, a lot of elbow pain comes from the shoulder. Uh, elbow's a small joint. Again, lot, almost a majority of the knee pain I find that's not a true mechanical injury where they were running and they 
tripped, fell, whatever, someone hit them or something and they tore ligament. And I'm not counting that. That's that's a true knee injury. Mm -hmm. But, you know, overuse things at the knee almost always are coming from the hip. Um, like IT band things. And absolutely. IT band things. Um, even just your your straight runner's knee where you get that pain right in the front of your knee. A lot of times you want to look at your hip flexors. They're probably pretty tight. Um, you, women specifically, because again, we have a larger cue angle from our hips down to our knees. You want to look at, you know, that knee pain can come from, you know, your, your lateral hip muscular muscles are fatiguing out. So you're going to get you know, weakness in your glute med, glute min, and your, again, like all of those deep hip rotators. And if they aren't working, the angle changes at your knee when you fatigue out. And that's what's causing your knee pain. Um, it can even come from below. You know, there's a lot of arguments seeing, you know, knee pain, look at the ankle, look at the foot, how the foot moves. And there is there, I think there is a lot of truth to that as well. You can find a lot going on down at the foot as well. So you're right. Look for consistencies or inconsistencies. Like if you can stretch your left leg up up to 90 degrees of your hamstring and your right leg is only at 50 degrees. That's something you should really yeah, con- an consider looking yeah. at. Yeah. Okay. And, and the main reason I bring it up is, you know, I would never encourage any listeners to try and self-diagnose if they're not, you know, properly trained to do that. But I think it is worth, you know, noting that if you can recognize poor movement patterns in yourself, or you can recognize, like you said, a lack of mobility in one limb compared to the other, then that's you know, getting back to what we said earlier, that's not only more evidence for your healthcare provider, but it's also indicative to you that maybe there's something I should change up about my routine so I can help myself, exactly. you know, instead of ending up in a situation where it's too late and hopefully not being in a situation where someone's just trying to throw pills at you and saying, well, good luck, good luck with that. Exactly. No, I agree. Cool. And the last, I, I don't know if this is really a myth so much as maybe it's just changed over the years, but when I was coming up and like running track and cross country in high school, it was all rice was the answer to everyone's problems. Rest, ice, compress, elevate for, for injuries. I've actually read a couple articles that talk about as part of that fight against inflammation that people should take things like ibuprofens, NSAIDs, like just general painkillers that would be anti-inflammatory. But I've read in some articles recently that that anti-inflammatory drug can actually slow your healing process because inflammation is part of the body's effort to heal something. So I guess my question is, you know, if you would use rice, when's a good time to use it? And when's a good time to, you know, actually self-medicate like, Hey, this hurts. I'm going to, this is a good time for ibuprofen versus like, you really need to do something else. Maybe with like, you know, even with soreness versus like exercise induced soreness versus something's actually injured type of thing. Right. Mm, it's kind of a hard call. Again, because, you know, if you're looking at the scenario of a, a person that's got to keep doing, you know, if they're in a course or if they're in a particular event and they're going to have to keep doing regardless of, of whatever, it's kind of a hard, I hate to tell people don't take NSAIDs. That said, it is true. Like, you know, infl- anti-inflammatories, they inhibit that inflammatory process. So, Let's say you have long-standing knee pain and you just know that, oh, when I go and run more than four miles, my knee is going to hurt. So you start popping a, you know, a, a ibuprofen before that, prophylactic and anti, um, anti-inflammatory. What that does is it kind of propagates a low-level inflammatory process always staying in your system. 
So, so this is like with your perpetual user of that anti-inflammatory. Exactly. Okay. Like one or once every and once in a while it's no big deal. That's that's whatever. But if you've got some chronic kind of pain, you're like, well, it always hurts when I do this. So I'm just instead of taking care of the issue, you start taking just anti-inflammatories. Again, that's you never allow the body to clean that inflammatory process out. Because mm-hmm. you're right. Inflammation is our body's way of healing itself. It gets in there, you get the swelling because your body's bringing in all of the, you know, the macrophages and all these other, let's flash back to biology here. You know, all those little cells, they go in there and they clean up all I can keep up with you. I don't know the vocab anymore. (laughs) (laughs) No, but they bring in all those little cells as, you know, clean up all the tissue that's injured. And then what ends up happening is all that gets cleaned out. And then you have all of the fibroblasts and all that that comes in and lays down tissue, but it's not going to lay down. So if you tear your muscle. Your body doesn't just magically regenerate muscle tissue. It's going to, it's going to create scar tissue. And that's how it knits itself together. The scar tissue, if that, that underlying inflammatory process is never allowed to complete. And so you keep doing that over and over again, your body just keeps laying down more scar tissue and it's going to be erratic and it's going to be a little bit of everywhere, which is going to potentially cause you further injury because you keep tearing through scar tissue down the road. Where if you just allow your body just to let that process happen, you know, those, you're know you going to have minimal scar tissue laid down. You're going to be able to return to play and, and return to work and return to everything else you want to do with minimal risk of f- further injury. Okay. Yeah. I'm sorry if that question seemed out of left field. I just, you know, oh, no. I get my hands on a lot of articles sometimes and I get these crazy ideas. And it's, it's nice to have somebody smarter than me to, to Oh, no. To I'm always straight. telling people like... <sighs> If they're miserable, like if they are, you're going to go out and you've got to do a 14 mile ruck today and it does not matter how miserable you feel, then yeah, take an anti-inflammatory, go for it. Like, I don't want you to be miserable, but if you can at all help it, like, especially like after I've, I've seen a, a guy or a female and I'm, I've treated them and I'm like, listen, you're going to be a little sore because what I do will make you a little sore. Mm-hmm. If you can at all help it, please don't take an anti-inflammatory gotcha. because that's actually going to decrease the positive ex- uh, response that your body's going to have to the treatment or, you know, again, just allowing it to t- just take care of itself. Right. Yeah. Good to know. All right, Shannon. I think that inquiring minds would like to know next. Other than discussing the Q angle, which for listeners that aren't familiar, go Google it with Dr. Google. It's essentially that, that angle in our hips that creates a bit of a triangular shape, right? Mm-hmm. Between our between like the pelvis and the knees and the upper thighs. Yeah. It creates different challenges for us about how we do things physically versus the guys. But uh, other than that particular consideration and just the general consideration of differences in strength and weakness between upper and bo- lower body, are there any big considerations that women should just keep filed away when they get into these tactical training profiles um, outside of, you know, being on a menstrual cycle and, and those other biological aspects? When we talk about general physical mechanics, is there is there anything else that you would that comes to the forefront of your mind? Like, hey, this is a thing that I think about, you know, when I go to employ my body in a tactical profile when I have to put a heavy load on my back and go move for a long time. This is a thing I need to be worried about or considering. And if there, if there's not, that's fine too. But I th- I'm wondering if it's just the way the question's phrased. I'm struggling with a little bit. Um, other than just simply the fact that load does tend to wear us, us down a little bit more. And when we fatigue over time, again, our form's going to go. And I think our form, because because of the different changes, the subtleties of difference between the male and female body, I do mm-hmm. do think we tend to 
break down in slightly different ways. Um, okay. Most people, though, if like you've been in the the in the tactical world for a while, you kind of know your telltale signs. Sure. Um, when I fatigue out, I start to get outside right knee pain. Mm-hmm. That's because that's just how my body starts to go. Okay, kind of done now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just that just just knowing that our body like. It is harder for us as far as like carrying large amounts of load. And so if there's any way to really make sure you've trained up prior to, if you're going to go to a school, let's say you're going to ranger school and you know, you're going to have to be able to carry 80 pounds for a lot of miles, really make sure you've worked up to that prior to going to ranger school. It's well, that's the goal with the Valkyrie project (laughs) 1.0 tactical training program. We, myself and Chris are really uh, for listeners that haven't listened to the first podcast, myself and Chris McNamara discuss a lot of, you know, the, the engineering that's going into that program. So hopefully we can get women to a point where their threshold is higher yeah. so that when they're under duress and fatigue and stress and hungry exactly. and just generally <clears throat> not at ideal performing level that, that they can still rise to meet the occasion. So, okay. So the last thing I wanted to bring up really, Shannon, is you guys have this beautiful new facility here at Evolution Athletics West in West End, North Carolina. Do you want to tell us a little bit about, for the local ladies, you know, sorry if you're out of state, but for the local ladies or anyone that's coming to visit North Carolina, you know, what what kind of services that they could expect to benefit from here, especially as a tactical athlete? Oh, gosh. Well, besides, obviously, the amazing gym and the coaches that that come along with um, EAX East or West, excuse me, yeah, we're, we're attached right next to it. What I really, I love working with athletes and I, I love being able to do a lot of the body work that tends to work for the athlete that may not necessarily work for all, all spans of, or genres Not everyone of from wa- every walk of life, but the exactly. stuff that helps athletes. Okay. Exactly. So what kind of techniques would those be most commonly? Um, of course, everyone's heard of dry needling. Yes, mm-hmm. of course. <laughs> we are more than happy to do, to do some therapeutic dry needling, um, Fascial manipulation, which actually is something kind of a little bit newer as far as the technique in which it's, I've, I recently went to a course and it's for fascial manipulation and I absolutely have, it's kind of changed how I work, you know, I work and evaluate people now. Okay. It's been having some really good success with that and basically just working through the fashion, really paying more attention to that connective tissue and, and its, its role in our body and in overuse injuries and with um, the efficiency of how we move in our body. What does that look like, fascial manipulation? Like if someone were to try and picture in their head, okay, uh, my physical therapist says they're going to use fascial manipulation to help me today. What does that look like? The way I specifically use it, um, it's the Stetco theory or they're the the Stetcos out of Italy. They're the ones who came up with this whole whole, uh, train of thought. And, And what they found was basically there's a lot of different points throughout the body where your fascia comes together and mm-hmm. it comes together and you also have um, nerves and there's some neural points through there where you get a lot of kind of control, which they, you know, the way to describe it, try not to get too technical is where a lot of muscle tissue comes in and how you're able to do gross movement in your body. Let's say you want to reach up and pick an apple out of a tree. Well, instead of thinking, all right, I've got to fire my deltoid to elevate my shoulder. And then I got to fire my, you know, my tricep to extend my arm. Instead of it being a whole bunch of segmental movement through the fascia, you're able to make that really quick, gross movement because of the nerves that run through the fascia and, and, and as well as the way the muscles attach, 
not just to the bone, but okay. into the fascial tissue. So really the fascia plays a role as part of the structure that helps you move better. And so... Absolutely. Okay. And so if you can treat that, which for me, there's certain points they've identified through the different segments. For example, like your neck is a segment and your head has several different segments and in it, they just break the body up. And then there's about six different points for each segment. And then of course, if it's hips, there's, you know, your left hip, right hip. So you'll have six points for each hip, six points for each, you know, going from your hip to your knee, you know, anyway, it's all very, it's segmental and there's six different points. And those specific points are where the fascia comes together. And it honestly will feel a little bit like your therapist is um, giving you a giving you a noogie. I don't know how else to explain it because you get in there and you do a... a, a like a high friction, probably it's a uncomfortable high friction and it's digging not, into my tissues type. A little bit. It's not always miserable. It's only really miserable if you actually have an issue there. But yes, it does feel wow. like high friction. That sounds like the story of my there. life. Like, like <laughs> I know I need this if it hurts kind of thing. Yeah, but the, what's pretty amazing though is that it, you know, I've had people limping in and then come out and they can do a full squat. They have no pain. Oh, like wow. the movement is, and I'm still exploring it a little bit too. And I'm still really impressed with what I see sometimes when it comes out. And they're like, they're like, you're amazing. And I'm like, oh, totally didn't expect that to go that well, but really glad it did. <laughs> <laughs> but fascial manipulation is something awesome. I'm doing a lot with nowadays. Okay. I also do Graston techniques. So. You know, using the the that's the metal scraper, right? It's just yeah, basically using like the instruments across the skin, to yeah, break to up. break up scar tissue, okay. and increase blood yep. flow to the I've area. I've had that one before too. Okay, yep. the active release technique, ART. So I do that and a bunch of other just you know some pretty decent contract relax like muscle um, muscle energy stretching and whatnot too. So okay. Great. Well, for our listeners that are in the local area or might be coming to the local area, if they want to hit you up, where can they find you? Do you have a web address that you could provide? Yeah. So we're on we're online at just simply um, five physical therapy all one type it all in one word dot com. So that's that's our website. Vive for you military types. Victor India. Victor Echo. Yep. So v i v e physical therapy dot com. And then our phone number is 910-378-1895. Excellent. I'm totally going to be hitting you guys up. I have perpetual shoulder issues after that surgery and things have gotten a lot better, but I can always use some help. So for sure. Definitely looking forward to seeing you a lot more here pretty soon. And with that said, Shannon, I'd like to thank you so much for being here and for sharing your knowledge without all the ladies and even the male listeners out there, whoever's listening, appreciate you participating with my odd and awkward and probably misinformed (laughs) questions. No, it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it as well. Thanks. Excellent. And as always, we want to hear from you listeners. Reach out to us on ValkyrieProjectUS.com to send ideas, shout outs, personal testimonies, or stories that you'd like to share. We are on Facebook and Instagram as ValkyrieProjectUS, so be sure to like and follow those pages to stay up to date. Do today what others won't. Do tomorrow what others can't. Thanks for listening.